you would, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We'll be in verses 21 through 26 today. We're continuing through our sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read the text. We're going to bounce in and out of the text today, but let's read the text. Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would give us clarity today in the message, that you would control my tongue, and that you would harness my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. So the world clearly views murder as a crime. They understand it. The religious establishment has really focused on this outward nature of not murdering. So we, we can tend to kind of run through the Ten Commandments and, and we say, well, I'm not too bad there. Well, I'm doing all right there. I definitely haven't murdered anybody. Most people would be able to say, oh, I haven't murdered anyone. But the standard of the kingdom of God is, is not merely to avoid the physical shedding of blood, but it's to be focused on the mere act of the murderer, but that we want to focus on the heart behind that. Because probably most of us in this room, maybe less a couple young kids in here, most of us in this room have probably used the words, I'm going to kill you. Most of us have used it. I see some nodding heads. I'm not the only one. So Jesus insists that it's not enough for us to just not murder someone, but we have to eradicate hate from our heart. John Piper said in, in his commentary on this, it's not enough to not murder. We must eradicate actual hatred from our hearts because hatred is murder. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll actually can, we can support that. Sinful anger, wrath, is murder. Any reference or character of the murderer itself is rooted in hatred. Hatred of something or someone. 1 John chapter 3, verses 15, John writes, Everyone who hates 
his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. These are pretty strong words. So the stakes really can't be higher as Jesus enters this section of the Sermon on the Mount. Are we already starting to feel the weight of this? You came in today thinking you were in pretty good shape, and now I'm calling everyone in this room a murderer. That's a pretty nice way to welcome you into our fold today. Jesus is saying, you are not safe from punishment just because you have not shed blood physically. Just because you have not murdered someone physically does not mean that you have not rejoiced over someone's misfortune in our sinful hearts. It does not mean that you have not put someone down in your own heart. You have wished someone whom you care nothing for, you have wished them harm. Admit it. Confess it. So you have murdered in your heart, whether you have murdered with your hands or not. So again, the radical righteousness that Jesus is demanding here, okay, is not merely refraining from an outward sin, but it is a transformation of the internal as well. So our only hope in Christ is to fulfill all righteousness, is that He has fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. We just spoke of that. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. I forgot that that was our hymn of the month, and Every Sunday, I have wept like a baby on the back pew. And when we started to sing that, I said, God, I have to preach after this. Please don't let me cry. (laughs) Our only hope is in Christ, who fulfilled all righteousness and offers this free gift to us. So one of the things that I have said over the years is that God's instruction and expectations of us are not anchors around our feet. People often view Christianity as this limiting thing that it just keeps me from doing all these things. It's actually the opposite. It is a cutting away of the anchor to enter into the freedom of serving God and through His Holy Spirit. I've said this a million times, that which God requires is ultimately most satisfying. That is where the satisfaction is actually found. Sin has pleasure for a season, but righteousness has eternal satisfaction. So sometimes his instructions are painful up front. It's like setting a broken bone. Nobody wants to, you break that bone, nobody, oh, oh, and you prepare for the pain of setting that bone. What is greater pain is not resetting the bone. Because all future things are based off of not correcting the broken bone. You then have deformities and limitations. So today we come to a a section of Scripture and, and Jesus is really dropping the hammer right out of the gate. And it's like setting a bone for us. We're already starting to squirm in our seats. So this part of the sermon here on the mount is, it's kind of neatly divided. And you'll see there's an insert in your uh, bulletin. Jesus gives us some doctrine, and then he gives us some application. 
So he, he says in verses 21 and 22, he gives us doctrine. And then in verses 23 through 26, we see his application. So to put it another way, he says, this is true. So what I'm saying is true. And then he says in verses 23 through 26, this is what you do with what is true. Okay? So he, he, he does this really well for us. And so we can follow this a little bit here. And so let's take a look at verses 21 and 22 again. Let's reread them and look at the doctrine section. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. This is true. He, he establishes truth from the very beginning of the statement. So I, I hope to mold this sermon around this shape of Jesus says this is true, and then this is the application that comes. So the first phrase in the section, you have heard it was said of those of old, you should not murder. This signals Jesus is going to give us an exposition okay, of the various laws of the Old Testament. And that's going to come in the coming weeks. We're going to see more and more. He's gonna, uh, next week he's going to talk about lust and, and then divorce. And he's going he's to start doing some, some doctrine and application, doctrine and application. And he's going to continue through this. And, he's, and, and this first phrase here points back to Exodus 20, verse 13, which is the, the sixth commandment. Don't murder. So there's three things that I want to note as we proceed through the doctrine section. So I know it's two verses, right? Come on, Dan, hit the, hit the gas pedal. But these are really important. It's really important because as we continue through this sermon series, these are going to be really important to keep in mind. One, Jesus is not contradicting or correcting the law. So if you remember, uh, verses 17 through 20, last week Pastor Justin shared uh, that Jesus is not here to abolish the law. Okay, He established that last week. So we could also add that he's also not here to contradict the law. Jesus isn't here to contradict or correct the law of God, but to explain it, to deepen the understanding of it, to fulfill it, to give a broader view of its requirements. When you step up to the Ten Commandments, you realize your need for a Savior. They really, it, really. It, I mean, honestly, when you just look at the Ten Commandments. For so long, when I was a little kid, I used to hear people say, I I'm just going to live by the Ten Commandments, and I'm going to be, you know, good. And then when I got older, I started reading the Ten Commandments. I was like, man, I am done. <laughs> good is not an option for me. So remember, Jesus is the Word. Okay? Jesus is the Word. As much as He doesn't contradict Himself, some said that Jesus is merely correcting these pharisaical misconceptions of the law. I think Justin did a good job of showing that that's not just the case. That's not the case. 
He's not necessarily correcting the Pharisees' teaching, though he certainly does that along the way, but rather pressing down into the law of God, spoke through Moses, and showing us the inadequacy of a surface-level understanding. Specifically in our text this morning, he'll show us that obedience to the Sixth Commandment requires not only keeping our hands from shedding blood, but maintaining fellowship with brothers. That, that goes a long way from killing someone to restoring fellowship. All of that is encompassed in murder. So, Jesus is not contradicting or correcting the law. And as we go through the next couple sections over the next couple weeks, he's not contradicting or correcting the law. Two, Jesus speaks with divine authority. And this is really important, particularly in this context, in this setting. Because he is saying, I am God. He's not, just, he's not just like one of the previous prophets who was a voice of God. God is saying this. The way Jesus frames his teaching in the sermon is intentionally placing himself in the seat of God. He says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, but I say to you. It's not, but I'm changing it. I'm adding to it. I'm contradicting it. He's saying, but I also say this. I am God. Who spoke on the Mount Sinai? God. Who's speaking here on the Sermon on the Mount? God. He is in the flesh, speaking now on this new mount. He puts himself and he establishes himself as deity. So God spoke at Sinai, and he is now speaking through his incarnate word now. Is decarnate a word? Is that a word? You're smarter than me. Okay. We're going to use it today anyway. So God was decarnate on Mount Sinai, and he's incarnate right here on this mount. Okay? You can dock me later. Discarnate? Would that be a Okay, we'll go with another. Right, well, anyway, we're just not carnate, okay? Disembodied, thank you. Yeah, that's why the smart ones sit on the front. All right. So God is disembodied at Sinai, and he is now embodied here. So Christ is no longer speaking as, and viewed now by the crowd as some great prophet. He is establishing, I am God. So it's really important that we understand that he is speaking with divine authority. That he is saying, I am God. Three, he has not changed the subject. This is not a diversion. He's, he's not, uh, he, he is still proclaiming the kingdom. So what does it mean to be meek? That's what he's saying here. What does it mean to be meek? What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Let me explain. And he starts off, he could start anywhere, right? We got lust coming up, we got divorce coming up, we got all these other things that he's going to discuss. And he starts with anger. And he equates it to murder. So he's still establishing, he's still proclaiming the kingdom and he's saying, okay, blessed are the meek. That's right. So what's it mean to be meek? What's it mean to 
be a peacemaker. So this isn't a new topic. He's almost as if he's anticipating questions. That's great. The kingdom of God is, is the meek and the peacemaker. What does that mean? Okay, he answers. So let's unpack this doctrine a little bit. Is anger evil? Ask yourself that question and answer. Is anger evil? 90% of us would say yes. The Bible would say no. God gets angry. And matter of fact, the Bible says that he's slow to anger. So anger in itself is not evil. He said over and over again to be slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God gets angry. Matter of fact, the, the, the whole reason we need a Savior is because He is going to pour out His wrath on sin. Righteous anger. If you look with me at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. A suppression of the truth. Jesus is establishing doctrine on the front end. He's saying this is what is true. And those who try to suppress the truth, that is evil. It deserves the wrath of God. That's righteous anger. Deuteronomy 9, verse 8. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was angry with you that He was ready to destroy you. Righteous anger. There is a righteous anger. 1 Kings, we're going to unpack it a little bit. 1 Kings 11, 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon. We're, we're also working our way through 1 Kings, so we're going to revisit this in a couple weeks, I'm sure. Because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. 2 Kings 17, 18. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. So God gets angry. God is perfect. He is unable to sin so therefore anger in itself is not evil jesus gets angry remember back in mark 3 he's angry at the hardness of the heart of the pharisees that they would rebuke him for healing a man with the withered hand he gets angry when the house of the lord is turned into a marketplace and he drives out the money changers righteous anger he gets angry in Matthew 23, calling the Pharisees, now listen, this is really important, calling the Pharisees blind fools. That very same word he just said, if you call someone a fool, it merits the fires of hell. Wait a minute, what? There is a righteous anger? There is a godly Anger? God sometimes points at human anger and says, you're actually justified in this. Here's where anger 
goes awry. Moses, in Exodus 11, he goes out from Pharaoh in anger, and Moses is also said to have been the meekest man on earth. But he goes out, he's angry at Pharaoh. Perfectly justified anger. His anger moved him to righteous activity. So anger isn't inherently wrong. So why does Jesus warn us so strongly against anger here? Why does he equate anger to murder? Well, Jesus himself displays righteous anger. He is the perfect example of righteous anger. And we start to see this answer when we see that it's the nature of the anger. Anger is a mover. It moves us. When I was working with troubled kids in the group homes, I always used to say to them, anger is a secondary behavior. It's a secondary emotion. There's something driving your anger. So, husband, wife, your wife gets mad at you. She says you're angry. She says, I'm so mad right now. And you say, you have no reason to be angry. Isn't that the greatest way to diffuse someone who's angry at you? Is to tell them that they have absolutely no reason to be angry. You have already shown the foolishness of that statement because they're angry. They absolutely have a reason to be angry. Then you unpack the emotion behind the anger. Anger is only safe under righteous conditions. And Jesus knows that our tendency is not to righteousness. So this warning, this, 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 this proclamation, this probably shocking statement, because everybody on the mount was probably like, whoa, wait a minute, I'm a murderer too? Anger is only safe under righteous conditions. And because... We attend to not be righteous. Jesus is warning us about this. Listen to some Proverbs on this. Proverbs 15, 18. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Proverbs 29, 8. Scoffers set a city aflame, but the wise turn away wrath. You see, it's not eradicate anger. It's operate anger righteously. Anger instead, uh, inside the hot-tempered man, doesn't stay put. Anger requires action, doesn't it? Anybody in this room that's ever been angry, you, it requires action. And it normally manifests itself unrighteously. And Jesus is saying, you're not going to avoid getting angry. See, this is the problem with some of the, the Jesus as a pill to fix everything theology. Well, if you, if you just get Jesus, all that goes away. Really? Because I still get angry. I've known Jesus for 20 plus years, and I still get angry. 
I still have people that in my life that are dying. I still have people that have betrayed me. I still have people that don't like me anymore that used to like me. Really? So Jesus is the fix-it pill. Jesus is saying, it's not that you're not going to get angry. Don't be a murderer when you do. Anger inside a hot-tempered man doesn't stay put. So when does murder happen? Murder happens in the field of strife. When we are not slow to anger, but we are quick to anger. Jesus actually tells us to be quick in something in this, but it's not be quick to anger. It's being quick to remedy it. Proverbs 22, verses 24 through 25. Make no friendship with a man given to anger, nor go with the wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. What do people who are angry normally do? You get mad. You are now looking to shore up alliances. I need someone to be as angry about this as I am. I need to shore. This is why I say that anger goes off the righteous path in the field of strife. Because what happens is anger creates this desire for a fight. It, does, it creates a desire for us to be moved to do something. And Jesus is trying to remind us that we are his children now and anger shouldn't move us to sin. Anger should move us to righteousness. And we're going we're gonna to create a little bit of a, an action here when Jesus gives us the application. We're still talking about the doctrine here. Jesus is saying this is true. I'm proving it to you. It's true. Parents, you and I need to soberly consider this. Our children are learning from us how to respond to inconvenience. This is, this is the convicting statement for preacher, preach to thyself today. Your children are learning how to deal with inconvenience by the way you respond to them when they are your inconvenience. Convicting. Heartbreaking. How many times have I murdered in that situation the proverbs warn us against befriending people who are prone to anger because we become like them that proverb is true for our children thinking about kids and anger because it's a common thing for parents to get angry very common Unfortunately, it is also uncommon for us to respond unrighteously. So I think we can agree that sometimes our anger is a fig leaf of our own failings. We often get mad at our kids for being unself-controlled and unkind and rude, and then we realize that we should step up into the mirror sometime and take a look. We don't realize that we've done just that and have taught them to be just that way because our anchor our anger led us to unrighteousness and not righteousness so here's the bottom line anger is something that must be dealt with quickly so jesus doesn't say get angry quick he says deal with your anger quickly Deal quickly with this emotion because it is the spark that can either burn a hot lamp of light and beauty or it can set a field of flame. 
It can give light to the justice of a situation. Or it can burn down the spiritual house in which it has been ignited. So we must deal quickly with it because anger doesn't stay put. If you take nothing else away today, anger doesn't stay put. It, it is thirsty for action. It wants motion. So Jesus' admonition here is to make sure that anger doesn't stay, that, that anger doesn't stay put and it moves us to justice and not sin. It moves us to righteousness and not unrighteousness. So that's the doctrine. Anger is prone to unrighteousness. Anger is not a bad thing. When dealt with unrighteously, it deserves the fires of hell. Doctrine. So what is an angry man to do? Let's look again in Matthew chapter, 20, uh, chapter 5, verses 23. We'll read 23 through the end, through 26. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's prioritizing something here. He's saying, hey, your religious stuff is less important than reconciliation. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. He's also saying, your gift is not a very good one. You're unreconciled with your brother. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I never understood debtor's prison, by the way. Why would you put somebody in prison who owes money and then make him not be able to make money in order to pay back the money that he owes? That whole concept, never, I never understood that. What Jesus is saying is, it puts you in a state that requires a Savior. Because you'll never pay it back. You'll never pay it back. This is a very simple application. When you have sinned, in your anger against someone, you have fallen under the condemnation of the sixth commandment, making yourself liable to the council and the fires of hell. So what would Jesus have you do? Sin is often the way of anger. Now my kids are listening to me preach this, so at least one of them's here, and they know so often in my pride and in my arrogance, I get annoyed and frustrated and short and quick with them. And I have nursed wounds into gangrene rather than to healing. So what would Jesus have us do? The answer is simple. He would have us be clean. The answer is confession, repentance, restitution, reconciliation. 
And insofar as it is up to you, restore fellowship. Living at peace with all men. He would have us be clean. It's that simple, right? That's so easy, isn't it? Just go out and reconcile all the damaged relationships that you have. We'll see you next week. Jesus says this is more important. Even the important things like religious duties. These are really important things that we do that we not harbor anger and that we not take the anger and respond unrighteously. It is important that in coming to worship on the Lord's day that we be clean of these things so that we can truly sing loud to a Redeemer who has truly redeemed us. So listen, may we obey this injunction. May, 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 may we be doers of this Word. May we be a people who go out and do this hard work of reconciliation. Because the warning here is that if we won't be a repentant people, we may not be His people at all. We have to really take a look. Have we really been redeemed? Because Jesus is saying, this is my character and my nature. And I have given you this character and this nature. So we'd be subject to paying a debt on our own that he's already established we can't pay. I was reading a blog from a pastor that I hold in pretty high regard out in Utah. His name's Brian Save. And he was doing a little blog post about the Ten Commandments. And, and really, the, the, the gist of the blog was the Ten Commandments are there to remind us that we need Jesus and we need him bad. And he goes down, he breaks down through a bunch of them. And as he got to this section, I'll shorten it for you and give you a nice short version um, so i want to leave us with something today jesus starts with doctrine and now he gives application and so the the application is do not let anger cause you to sin and because you haven't done this well you have broken relationships in your life that need healing and so I'm going to share just application from this text, from Scripture, that will help us as we move forward in anger. Righteous, redeemed people, hear this. If we are an unforgiving people, we may not be His people at all. Be slow to anger, number one. A Christian's fuse should be long. One that I have had to lengthen over the years. James 1, 19, 20, uh, Pastor Justin read it. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce. Anger produces something. It calls for action. There is movement to anger. Anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This is the aim that we are looking for here at Rockfish. We want to be a community that is known for our heart-filled ability to love those that have hurt us. We shouldn't just be able to love strangers on the street, but enemies on the street. 
We just praise the Lord for being a God who took his enemy and seated him at his table. Yet we don't reflect it. Jesus is saying this is the most important thing you can do in your life. This is so important. This is resetting a broken bone because nothing is good without resetting the bone. So becoming unoffendable, hard to be angered, slow-fused. Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one slow to anger. And then it goes on, and it is His glory to overlook an offense. It is His glory to overlook an offense. To not be offended at the drop of a pin. To not feel like you're owed something in something. It is His glory. Can I overlook this wrongdoing? Can I simply not be mad at this offender? Look, family, God does this for us every day. Every hour. God does this for us. He is slow to anger. Doesn't mean that he's not angry. But he'll bring all things to perfect justice, whether on the cross or whether in hell. Justice is served. Two, quickly classify your anger. This is one that I have been working on for years in my life. As soon as frustration, anger, annoyance, wrath peeks out from behind the curtain, you need to capture it and figure out whether it is righteous anger or not. Because not all anger is righteous anger. You might be angry, and it's your fault that you're angry because you're not right. So you have to identify, you have to classify your anger right away. What am I mad about? Am I justified in being angry? Where, this is the most important step, where in the scripture do I go to justify this anger? That's what we have to reflect it up against. If it's righteous anger, it will be righteously shown to us that it is righteous anger. So let me give you an example. It is absolutely heart-wrenching and unacceptable for there to be racist people in our society who who will deny someone something based on race that makes me mad what i can do with that anger is righteous or unrighteous what i can do is i can attack an entire people group based on the fact that someone from their people group was wrong to this people in this people group. That is unrighteous anger. So, I, But I can mask it and say that it's righteous anger. But when I press it up against Scripture, it shows me that it's not righteous anger. It is righteous anger to be angry that someone is not following the character and nature of God, that he's a God to all tribes and all tongues and all nations. But what I do with that anger, I have, to, I, have to, I have to classify, I have to quickly classify my anger. If it's just, then I need to put a collar on it. I need to make sure that I deal with it quickly, soberly, and it doesn't drag me into sin. If I determine that it's unjust, stop, repent, confess. 
end it right then and there. Cut the head off the serpent before it bites. So I have to classify my anger. Three, I'll respond in accordance to Scripture and not culture. What's the difference? We could go on. That's, that's seven more sermons. Scripture is the track that keeps us from flying off the cliff when we respond to anger. It's important that we be in the Word. It's important that we, we cannot overlook an offense. I mean, we, 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 can, we can overlook an offense when we press it up against Scripture. When we press it up against our own offense. So when we classify our anger and we determine what our anger is, and Jesus is saying, he, he's talking about this in our text. He's saying these are the things that you do. Go, to the, go, go quickly to the person who's the accuser. Because if you sit on it, it's going to go to the judge. And then the guard's going to get involved. At, right? It festers. So the Scripture is the track that keeps us from flying off, off the cliff when we're angry. Move quickly to confession and forgiveness. Have I stolen? I repay it. Have I gossiped? I admit it and I confess it. Have I lied? I come clean. I make peace with those that I have hated, those that I have murdered. Relationships have been murdered. And a lot of them have been murdered by Christians. In dealing with anger, lastly, get back in fellowship. This is broad. And it'll take me a minute. In dealing with anger, Jesus teaches us that the restoration and maintenance of fellowship is chief. He says, restore. When our brother sins against you, brother annoys you, whatever it is, speaks poorly of you, does something wrong to you, Christians don't get to fix the problem by jettisoning that person. It is our content. And there is a biblical path to which that can take place. There is. That's another sermon in itself. But the cold shoulder is not an initial Christian response. Shunning is not an initial Christian response. Leaving a church whenever someone bothers you is not a Christian response. And here in Nelson, you have a hard time finding another one real quick. So that's why there is this community in America full of Hopping Christians that hop from place to place to place because they have not dealt with their murderous ways. And they go about burning fields to the ground everywhere that they go. And in those fields are unbelievers. In those fields are unbelievers who say, if that's a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. So wherever, whatever, and whoever, it could be your kids, it could be your neighbor, it could be your spouse, it could be your coworker, it could be your boss. The aim is to be in fellowship. Now let me clarify. Because what we can do, we can easily say, well, if I don't restore fellowship, I haven't actually done it. The aim is to restore fellowship. Because it's a two-way street. The aim is to restore fellowship. 
it should be our intention and our goal and our desire and our want and our prayer and our focus to restore fellowship. But it may be met with complete resistance. Their lack of unforgiveness towards you has nothing to do with your lack of has nothing to do with your ability to forgive them on your end. And Jesus is saying, in any way possible, live at peace. We're going to take communion now, and perhaps this is an examination of your own heart. Perhaps this is a week you might want to skip it. You might want to leave your gift. You might want to pray about, man, I came in here thinking I wasn't a murderer, and now I am. Man, I've got some calling Lazarus out of the grave work to do. Maybe this is a reflection for you. Maybe this is a time for you to really determine if the Holy Spirit has truly moved you to be such a child of God. Unbeliever, if you've come in here today, maybe this was your last ditch effort, this was your last chance to give God a chance, I hope you hear Him loud and clear. He loves you. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love. And He wants to transform you into the image of His Believer, perhaps the callus has grown so thick over your angered heart that you've been unable to even pick the scab and make it bleed. I pray that God has ripped it from its borders and that your heart is bleeding with the desire to reconcile. I'm sure that there are things that we've all done and that we think relationships that are broken are completely unredeemable i am glad that our god does not share the same mindset let's pray father i thank you for the opportunity to be convicted i thank you for the truth that my hatred in my heart is murder and that i need you god I need you for reconciliation. I need you to be able to forgive someone who has hurt me. I need you to be able to determine whether my anger is just or unjust. I need you to forgive me when I respond in an unrighteous way. I need you to give me the power to restore that hurt that I have caused. Lord, may our anger for unrighteousness burn as a bright light of justice and not as a fiery field of destruction. And it is in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.